Hey guys, I wanted to apologize in advance for some reason. Uh, I did not turn this microphone on uh, when I was recording, so I was using the microphone off of this old uh, camera that I have attached to my computer, so the sound will not be up to par. I apologize. Uh, it's not that bad, but it will. this is not a sign of things to come. Please don't stop listening to the series because, uh, because of the sound. Uh, I, it was just a technical error on my part, and uh, I apologize. Um, and we will be back on track uh, for episode 12. Here we go. Civilizations, we are uh, concluding the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution, although chronologically they are both pretty much concluded. We are talking more about the aftermath, right, Dave? Yeah, we're almost there. So Napoleon, where are we? Napoleon is, uh, has started just, a bunch of wars. <laughs> he's just been challenged. Uh, Russia has withdrawn from his continental system, the embargo against Britain. And to Napoleon, that is a challenge he cannot afford to ignore. Um, not for the economic reasons, but for his his prestige. And as he put it himself, uh, I gained my empire through conquest. And through conquest, I have to maintain it. So he felt that unless he was you know, beating people up and winning battles, that uh, the empire he'd put together would, would come apart. See, this is all, I'm sorry, I just, this is all so psychotic that the idea that he's still studied today as a prescription is, you know, it's mind-boggling because, I mean, it's all, it all ends, anyway, so, but anyway, I don't want to anticipate, but yeah, I guess you'll tell us how it ends. Well, yeah, but um, in terms of the reason for the war, those, I mean, those reasons still apply. There are still prestige wars, and well, I mean, yeah, I, I actually yesterday night I was talking to a China podcaster, uh, Carl Jha, uh, about the current India-China fight at eight thousand feet above sea level, land nobody wants or you know really is interested in having for any reason, but it's you know the, those are the borders, so yeah. Well, I was thinking of the last invasion of Iraq. I mean, just just to do a regime change to prove you can. Yeah. Uh, there are other causes, of course, but anyway. Yeah, so Napoleon decided to teach Russia a, a, a lesson. He did not go off uh, half-cocked, as the president likes to say. He spent the entire year, 1811, gathering an enormous army and gathering supplies because he knew from his past experience in Eastern Europe, that an army that big could not live off the land. So tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of horses and wagons and supplies, and he gathered an army of a, almost 700,000 men, which is quite an achievement considering he had 250,000 men still fighting in Spain. This army, though, was uh, qualitatively quite different from what he'd been you know, accustomed to before, uh, only one third of the troops were French. Uh, 
one-third of them were Germans, uh, Saxons and Bavarians and Westphalians and uh, Prussians and Württembergers and Rhinelanders and, you know, from all over the place. And the other third of the army was like a United Nations of Europe, uh, Danes and Dutch, about 70,000 Poles who were quite eager to uh, take a crack at Russia, and, and they were hoping for greater independence. So far, all Napoleon had given them was a grand duchy of Warsaw. He didn't create a kingdom because he didn't want to antagonize Russia, but now that's you know looking like a possibility. Um, Italians, uh, you know, even some Spanish and Portuguese for reasons that <laughs> defy reason. So this massive, massive army was gathering on Russia's borders, and they gathered about a quarter of a million men uh, of their own. Now, we all know what happened. It's, it's passed into, uh, gosh, I guess, legend more than history. Uh, and considering that we all know what happened, it makes Napoleon look really dumb. And um, I guess it makes the Russians look really smart. So just for starters, I would like to dispel both of those myths um, fairly quickly. Uh, we know from what happened that the Russians retreated and that winter destroyed Napoleon's army. So the logical conclusion is that the Russians meant to do that. Well, in fact, they had a couple of plans, uh, none of which involved retreating. So plan A was to line the border with men and not give up an inch of sacred Russian soil. Uh, had they done that, of course, they would have been defeated uh, quickly and easily, and it would have been a very different story. Uh, the fact is, when they saw the size of Napoleon's army, plan A just you know, looked as ridiculous as it was. So they scrambled to go with plan B, which was... To retreat to a fortified position, to a super fortress that was going to be built by a, a German engineer, and then from inside that super fortress, they would let Napoleon, you know, batter himself to smithereens. The only problem with this plan was that the fortress had not been built yet. So, the Russian uh, reaction, I guess, to Napoleon's invasion was really chaotic. And uh, retreating was, in fact, forced on them by the size of Napoleon's army. The further he advanced, of course, he had to leave tons of troops to guard his supply lines, these wagons coming from occupied Prussia and Poland. Uh, and he also had armies on either flank. He had uh, Austrians guarding his southern flank. They, they were uh, his in-laws and allied to him. And he even had some uh, Prussians guarding his northern flank uh, with French troops alongside. So basically, by the time Napoleon got to Smolensk and then further on, we're not talking about 700,000 men anymore. Um, more like a little over 200,000. The Russians decided they had to defend Moscow, uh, so they did, and they fought the Battle of Borodino, or Borodino, uh, the one that's immortalized in uh, War and Peace. Um, it was a, a, a slugfest. Napoleon was not at his best. He was having health issues, and he seems to have been just mentally tired. And again, the, the armies were too big to control 
directly. Uh, the Russians fortified a position and Napoleon just launched frontal attack after frontal attack on it. The uh, cannon fire caused most of the casualties and it was just a, a, a slaughter on both sides. Both armies lost uh, ridiculous numbers of, of men. And the French were in the process of winning. Napoleon could have delivered the coup de grace, but he hesitated and he did not send in his imperial guard. They were his last reserve, and I think he was very conscious that he was far from home. Uh, so he hesitated and then held back the guard and ordered his other troops to win the fight without them. They did, but it was not the, uh, I guess, the complete victory that he'd been hoping for. So the Russians withdrew and Napoleon marched into Moscow. Well, this is the pattern of most of his campaigns. You defeat the enemy army, occupy their capital, and then you offer terms. And in this case, Napoleon was prepared to offer pretty generous terms. He doesn't want any territory from Russia. He's not going to punish them that way. He just wants Alexander to admit that he was wrong and rejoin the continental system. And then he can chide him, you know, like an indulgent uncle and say, oh, Alex, you shouldn't have fought me, you bad boy, you. Uh, the only problem for Napoleon was that his letters went unanswered. Uh, Alexander had left Moscow. The city had been evacuated by most of the, the nobles and the military. Uh, in fact, it was a very empty city when the French marched in. Uh, most of the population had left as well. Uh, except for um, the prisons had been emptied and the lunatic asylum as well. So those uh, citizens of Moscow were actually running around looting and the French were pretty upset because they're looting the houses that we want to loot. So Napoleon allowed them to break ranks and start looting, which they did. So they found... Uh, Naturally, they found alcohol, and very shortly, the entire French army was drunk, uh, holed up in stately Russian houses, and enjoying the food and uh, liquor and stealing all the stuff they could find. So Napoleon wrote another letter to Alexander, and then another letter, and kept waiting for the Tsar of Russia to come to terms, which he just didn't. And here's another, you know, limit of warfare and diplomacy at that time. It's like Spain. What do you do if your opponent refuses to make peace? They, they yeah. don't have the capacity for total war or total destruction. Well, I was thinking about, that makes me think of these, these more recent American wars, which are more of the, the way they tried to fight indigenous people, which is like, we just destroy the basis of your entire civilization. So they are not even looking for a surrender, but then when they're fighting states or, you know, like even with Iraq in 2003, as we mentioned, they were like, yeah, we're going to change the regime. We're going to destroy the regime. And then now there's nothing, there's nobody, you've actually taken away the people that could have signed an agreement with you and agreed to terms. And so... Well, and the Americans still suffer from that 1945 syndrome where they will accept nothing less than unconditional surrender. Yeah. Which uh, most people aren't going to give you. Yeah. yeah. In any case, Napoleon stayed in Moscow uh, until it caught fire. 
and this is still up for debate, uh, who started the fire? Um, was it some of these prisoners who'd been released, uh, petty thieves and maybe just an arsonist with, uh, with a flare? Uh, was it the French accidentally or did uh, Russian soldiers come in secretly and set fire to the city as a, you know, if we can't have it, you can't have it. Um, maybe they heard. Maybe they heard about what the revolutionaries in Haiti were doing five or six years before. <laughs> no, ten years. I'd have doubted, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, the precedent is certainly there. Um, so with Russia burned, and also with none of the peasants coming in to town with food, Napoleon knew he he basically could not stay in Moscow over the winter. So his supply lines were far too long. He decided to retreat, probably at least to Smolensk, and shorten up his supply line. And then he would uh, winter there. And in the spring, boy, he would teach Alexander a lesson. He would retake Moscow. He would take St. Petersburg. He would chase Alexander and force him to sign a treaty. So that's when the retreat began. And almost immediately, it it began to go badly. Uh, the Russian army had been reformed, and while they weren't ready for battle with the French, they could certainly uh, harry them, you know, follow them, um, ambush them when they spread out to go foraging or even cutting, you know, woodcutting parties. Uh, so they were on the heels of the French army, and because of that, they steered the French away from a new path and forced them to retrace their steps basically the same way they had come, which meant passing over the battlefield of Borodino, where no one had buried the bodies. And uh, just in, it, it reads as a horrific, horrific sight. You know, 30,000 dead bodies, uh, including the men who had been wounded and had only died uh you know weeks or months afterwards in fact they found one french soldier still alive he'd lost both legs to uh cannonball and he'd survived by drinking from puddles and eating the flesh of dead horses and that's not the grisliest thing that happened in the rest of that year uh, i don't need to describe the retreat in uh tremendous detail, but for scenes of horror, for scenes of uh, courage against all obstacles, uh, boy, Napoleon's retreat from Moscow is pretty spectacular. For scenes of utter pointless waste of human life, for the aggrandizement of a megalomaniac. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the Cossacks did most of the pursuing. At one point, they almost captured Napoleon. Uh, he managed to escape. And then he did a typical Napoleon thing. He abandoned his army and raced back to Paris. Um, the story goes that he had heard uh, rumors of a coup being plotted. And I don't know how real you know, such a plot was or, or could have been. But remember, Napoleon seized power in a coup and he was uh, quite paranoid about somebody doing the same to him. So that was his excuse. He left the army, and then from there, discipline just dissolved. And then the, the uh, multi-national, multi-ethnic army started to split. And, you know, Bavarians would fight 
poles for you know a fire or a, or a barn to sleep in and uh it was sauve qui peut everyone for himself every man for himself the crossing of the berezina was uh quite an accomplishment we're talking about french engineers going into the icy waters of the berezina uh to build a bridge uh, while being subjected to Russian cannon fire from the other bank. And somehow they managed to do it. Uh, Marshal Ney, if you've heard that name before, this is certainly his finest hour. He was in command of the rear guard and twice was cut off completely, lost contact with the main body. Uh, and apparently he was the last man out of Russia at the border with Poland they, they were being chased by Cossacks, and apparently Ney took the last musket shot and then threw down the weapon in disgust and stalked into headquarters where nobody recognized him because he was, you know, swathed in rags and bearded, and uh, you can only imagine what he went through. Uh, that French army of 700,000, when they took uh, the roll call in early 1813, they had 89,000 uh, effectives. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know six hundred thousand men died. The the Prussians went home. The Austrians went home, um, and I'm sure plenty of men deserted. But there's no question that uh, that eighteen twelve campaign was a disaster for Napoleon of of epic proportions. Um, Prussia took advantage to uh, declare war. They began to raise a larger army. Uh, the British jumped in with money, with uh, weapons and equipment to uh, help them get started. Uh, the Russians were promising to be on their way as soon as they could reorganize and, and uh, the weather got better. So Napoleon knew he was going to be in for a fight to maintain his position and that the battlefield would be Germany. Uh, Napoleon raised an army rather quickly, in fact, astonishingly. For a guy who'd been sluggish in 1812, in 1813, he seemed to have uh, rediscovered his wits and his energy. Uh, he called up the conscript classes uh, two years early. So instead of drafting simply 18-year-olds, he drafted the 16- and 17-year-olds at the same time. Uh, they were trained on the march on their way to Germany. Uh, some of them were going into battle having never fired a musket before. And these guys were so young uh, they got the nickname Marie Louise's after the Empress because they looked like basically little girls in uniform. Uh, they did not learn all the tricks of the trade. They were not capable foragers, able to find food for themselves. Uh, the guys who knew how to do that were either dead or in Spain or prisoners or there just weren't that many veterans left. Napoleon had to rely on these young boys but they did have something else, and that was uh, enthusiasm. These kids uh, basically grew up with the revolution, right? If you're 16 in 1813, you're born in 1797, you never experienced the terror. In fact, your earliest memories are probably of Napoleon taking power, and he's, he's the legend. He's the man. So the hero worship and the enthusiasm that they went into battle with, I guess, made up for their lack of training. Uh, he stripped men from Spain. 
he uh, basically pirated his own navy to get gunners for the artillery. But there was one thing he couldn't produce, and that was horses. So many horses had died in the Russian campaign. He could not re-equip his cavalry effectively enough. He needed horses to pull wagons. He needed horses to pull uh, cannons. There just weren't enough cavalry mounts. So his new army... Uh, was large. He raised hundreds of thousands of men, but untrained and really lacking in cavalry. And in that 1813 campaign, it really hurt him. Um, just a little detour. We didn't mention it, but at, in 1812, there's something else that happened. Uh, the Americans declared war on Britain. <laughs> and came to Canada. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. If you read... Um, American histories, it seems like the major cause was freedom of the seas. The Americans were upset that the British blockade uh, applied to them and would not allow them to trade with Europe. Uh, they also didn't like British warships boarding their merchant ships and uh, removing crew members who were, you know, British Navy deserters. So, uh, freedom of the seas. I find it hard to believe that somebody would go to war over that. No, they saw a good chance to steal Canada, and uh, they grabbed it. And boy, did they make a mess of that! Uh, well, yeah, and I mean, I, I read, a, I haven't read too much um, about this, but there's a there's a Canadian kind of our complicated politics, but his name's David Orchard. He's oh yeah. Like, farmer from Saskatoon, but he wrote a, his, his, he wrote a history of Canada, which is basically, he frames the history of Canada as resistance to U.S. attempts to take the whole continent. Right. Um, and so the War of 1812, I mean, the main issue that he, or the main element that he calls attention to is the alliance with, all the alliances with Indigenous nations, and of course, Tecumseh being the, the most important figure, but like, you know, he he argues that there was no way they could have uh, kept Canada out of the American out of American hands without those alliances with Indigenous and and like, French Canadians and French Canadians, right? Yeah. Who? So it was also like you know you're subjugated, no you're con. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No reason yeah. to fight for the British. Certainly not. Uh, you know, loyalty for loyalty. <laughs> no. But that, I think they clearly recognized that. Uh, Boy, yeah, how, than the Americans. However, however bad this deal is, yeah, the Americans are going to be worse. I remember David Orchard. He was a perennial candidate for the leadership of the uh, Conservative Party. Conservative Party, yeah, and then he made this deal with uh, Peter McKay that they would never merge with the then Reform Party, and then Peter McKay got his delegates, and then promptly signed <laughs> the uh, Harper takeover, and and then. We got 10 years of Harper out of it, I guess. Yeah. But Orchard, yeah, Orchard was really upset about that whole deal. Um, I think he tried. I think he's in the NDP now. You're kidding. I think so. I'm not sure what he's up to. Wow. Well, his, his politics were never conservative, right? It was always a stretch to argue that he was conservative. He would find this kind of, these conservative people that said you know cherry pick their things <laughs> red tories and whatever but yeah yeah that's never what 
he was about. He was, I mean, his main thing is about NAFTA, right? He was just really a campaigner against the free trade agreement. Hmm. So, yes. So the, the point being the alliances with indigenous nations were key to the defense of. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the war of 1812 is uh, two wars, really. One of them naval. And, and you can imagine how hard it would be for the British Navy. They are basically blockading most of Europe. And now they have to deal with uh, the Americans. The Americans didn't really have a navy, though. What they had was plenty of uh, frigates and small commerce raiders. And in those fights, like one ship to one ship, frigates, medium-sized warships, uh, say 30 to 36 guns, uh, as opposed to a man of war, which would have 60, 70, 80 guns. In those ship-to-ship combats, the Americans did very well. Uh, there's no big uh, gap there in terms of quality. But when it came to invading Canada, my God, it, it's almost a comedy. Uh, you know, you have a, an American army of four or 5,000 men uh, invading Niagara-on-the-Lake, uh, capturing the fort there, uh, opposed by about four or five hundred British troops backed by militia. You know, the fact that they weren't able to simply capture the entire place is laughable. And then the, the big invasion that came up the traditional route up the Richelieu, uh, aiming for Quebec, uh, the, the victory there by mostly French Canadian troops backed by a little bit of British militia and uh, indigenous people. I wouldn't celebrate it as, you know, a triumph of Canadian arms. It's more like an embarrassment for American arms. How could you not win with those odds in your favor? Part of the answer is that most Americans weren't interested in this war. This was a Southern American war they wanted it and the people in the north they, they traded with canada they traded with you know new brunswick and nova scotia the new englanders continued to trade through the war as if they just ignored it uh and many of the troops that were raised and, and sent weren't all that interested and certainly the ones that were further out west around uh michigan and in those areas were really not keen to go up against uh, indigenous fighters because they were terrified. Um, in any case, that war lasted until 1814, and a peace was signed that basically revealed that the Americans achieved none of their war aims. Uh, and then, I think a week after the peace had been signed, uh, in those days, it was not immediately communicated to everyone by text or you know radio or anything like that. So down south, they didn't realize the war was over, and a battle was fought at New Orleans where a British commander decided stupidly to make a head-on attack against troops in good defensive positions and uh, lost the battle. So the Battle of New Orleans, the Americans celebrate as a great victory. Um, despite the fact that it was meaningless, the war was already over. Uh, back to Europe. Uh, Sweden joined the war against Napoleon, which is really interesting because of who their new king was. Um, 
Gustavus the Mad uh, died 1809 or 10, I forget now. So the Swedes were looking around for a monarch. Their, the family line had run out. And they went to France and they asked Napoleon if they could invite one of his marshals to be their constitutional monarch. Napoleon agreed. They chose uh, Jean Bernadotte. The reason being in 1806, he had captured some Swedish troops during the conquest of uh, Prussia. And Bernadotte had been very civil, very courteous to these captured Swedish officers. So they remembered him. And I have no idea why his name came up. It really boggles the mind that the Swedes would want a French Republican uh, as their king. And I, I'm pretty sure Bernadotte had a tattoo on his arm that said death to tyrants. And now he's a king. But in 1813, he decided that Sweden's best interests were with the Allies, and he joined the coalition against Napoleon. So Napoleon is now fighting... Uh, Britain, Portugal, and Spain in the peninsula, and he's fighting Russia, Prussia, and Sweden in Germany. Uh, he won a couple of victories at Lutzen and Bautzen, uh, thanks to the enthusiasm of these young troops, but without cavalry, he couldn't finish them off. So victories, but not knockout blows. He needed horses so badly that he resorted to asking for a truce, a timeout, if you will. So for a couple of months, these massive armies uh, did not engage each other and pretended that they weren't at war. And Napoleon tried desperately to scape, scrape together enough cavalry uh, to give himself a chance. Why, why did the other side agree? Uh, they had hopes of gathering more men, more material, plus the British were shipping them you know, thousands of muskets and uniforms and supplies and equipment, which they desperately needed as well. They were also active on the diplomatic front, trying to persuade Austria to come into the war with them. The Austrians were really hedging their bets. They knew very well, if we lose one more time, it might be the end of us. On the other hand, a chance to take him down and regain our former position. Ooh, they were so tempted. And then Wellington's uh, Anglo-Portuguese and Spanish army uh, defeated Napoleon's brother Joseph at the Battle of Vittoria. It was a conclusive defeat, and it swept the French out of Spain entirely. That was enough for Austria. They declared war on Napoleon, and now another quarter of a million troops lined up against him. The Allies adopted a new interesting strategy. Um, don't fight Napoleon. Uh, if you learn that Napoleon is in command of the army in front of you, retreat. But if Napoleon is not present, press forward and attack. Napoleon couldn't be everywhere. And the Imperial Guard, his best troops, were with him. So if he's not there, the Guard is not there. And that's a French army that you can probably beat. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, they began attacking where Napoleon was not. And they won a couple of small victories. Very frustrating for Napoleon as he ran around trying to engineer that, you know, decisive knocking blow. <laughs> I love it. So the slogan is, how do you beat Napoleon? Don't fight him. Why not? Don't fight Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he nearly caught the Austrians at, at Dresden and gave them a real uh, fright, but they retreated. They just ran for it. And while he was chasing them, 
Uh, Marshal MacDonald was defeated by uh, a Prussian Swedish army and Napoleon had to come running back. So it's kind of like um, gratifying, right? Like all you have to do is show up and then the entire opposite army just runs. Well, he beat them first and was pursuing them to finish them off. So, you know, the running made sense. Uh, Napoleon's frustration, though, led him to gather all that army together. So he was uh, at Leipzig in Saxony, fearing that the Saxons were going to change sides, which they did. Uh, He had 300, 350,000 men, an army far too big for him to command in person, but he was despairing at this new Allied strategy. Uh, The Allies gathered their armies, Austrians, Russians, Prussians, and Swedes, and they had almost 700, or sorry, they had over 500,000 men. So 500,000 to 300 and change. The Battle of Leipzig became known as the Battle of Nations, and it was the biggest armed conflict uh, in Europe since I can't think of anything that size. Maybe when Xerxes invaded Greece, he was supposed to have had a million men. Uh, Rather doubtful, but this is a big... Well, I, I know about that from the highly historically accurate uh, film known as 300 by Zack Snyder, I believe. I knew you were going there. Well, yeah, you got to go there. I mean. <laughs> uh, Leipzig was uh, a three-day battle, and it ended in disaster for Napoleon. He tried to retreat uh, an overzealous officer blew up one of the main bridges across uh, the river that he needed to cross and some of his army was trapped on the wrong side. While he was retreating, his German satellite states began to change sides very quickly. Bavaria changed sides. In fact, they tried to bar his path. Uh, He defeated them at Hanau and retreated into France. So in 1814, The war came to France for the first time since, wow, the 1790s. The odds against Napoleon were ridiculously bad. The Allies signed a treaty, the Treaty of Chaumont, uh, where they agreed not to make a separate peace with Napoleon. They also agreed to keep 150,000 men in the field uh, each. That's Austria, uh, Prussia. Russia and Britain. So Napoleon is facing an army over 600,000 men and he's got very little left. What's interesting is the 1814 campaign of Napoleon is again brilliant. It seems like with a small number of troops he can pull off miracles. You know, he's got 7,000 men here and he attacks the Prussian advance guard and drives them back and then he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee and he's winning little victories here and there, and none of it really matters because the enemy forces uh, arrayed against him are are so immense. So while he's fighting uh, a little battle uh, about 70 kilometers south of Paris, uh, the Prussian army reached his capital, and the defenders basically collapsed. One of his marshals, who had been a good friend of his, uh, surrendered and let them capture the city. So Napoleon was still... You know, looking at maps and planning, well, I can get like 1,200 men from there and we can bring these guys over here. And and that's when his marshals told him it's over. 
Hey, you know, um, have you seen the German movie Downfall, which has become uh, many, many different internet memes? Um, um, it rings a bell. There's a scene where Hitler, you know, oh. all his generals come in. <laughs> yes. And he, and he shows them a whole plan and they say oh, all of those armies have been destroyed. And then he just has this raving rant where he's screaming. That must have been very similar. You could probably make a similar one. Well, there's Napoleon. a wonderful uh, film uh, called Waterloo. Um, great. Oh, yeah. You showed us that, in, I think. Yeah. Because uh, uh, it's Christopher Christopher Plummer is the Is Wilson, Rod Steiger as Napoleon. Yeah, the rant at the beginning, when his marshals are telling him it's over, he, he has a nice uh, ranting scene in the fine tradition of Hollywood rants. Uh, the film, though, is mostly memorable because there's no computer right. at that period. So the battle sequences were done using uh, the Red Army. Like a, wow. <laughs> like fifteen to 20,000 Russian soldiers dressed up in Napoleonic period costumes. And the oh, battle scenes are absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I think the director oh. was Ukrainian. I'll have to watch that again. I remember, um, I remember it was very pro-British. Like it showed the British as being super cool. It's like uh, Christopher Plummer's sitting there and one of his aides comes and says, uh, in case uh, you do not make it, sir, what is your plan? And he says, my plan? To defeat the French. <laughs> uh, tr true story, according to the guy he was talking to. And <laughs> another true story from there, he was... Uh, sitting on his horse next to his cavalry commander, uh, Uxbridge, and something exploded, near, I think a shell from a howitzer exploded right near them. And being the superb horseman he was, Wellington maintained control of his animal and then uh, looked at Uxbridge, who had a rather pained expression on his face. And Uxbridge said, by God, I think I've lost my leg. And Wellington looks down, looks back up at him and says, by God, sir, so you have. <laughs> and, and this is the beginning of this uh, British love affair with the stiff upper lip, right? You know, showing no emotion. Oh well, yeah. We'll we'll have more on Wellington, I suppose. In the uh, yeah, he was all over India. Yeah, and uh, later Prime Minister of Britain the and. Whole. The, that Victorian ideal. In any case, uh, Napoleon had no choice at this point but to abdicate. He tried to negotiate a deal where they would let him abdicate in favor of his son, but eventually the Allies decided that was a bad idea, so Napoleon abdicated. And they gave him a sweet deal. He had removed the king of Spain from his throne. He had, you know, made and unmade kings. And the Allied rulers decided that, you know, executing or imprisoning a, an emperor was a bad precedent. What if we lose the next war, right? I don't want to be thrown in prison. I want to be treated like an emperor. So they let him remain an emperor, and they gave him the island of Elba off the coast of Italy, where he could be Emperor of Elba, despite the fact that it was a tiny 
tiny little island. So Napoleon went there. They let him take a thousand of his old guard as a, you know, an honor guard, I suppose. And the British Navy kept watch um, just to make sure he stayed there. So it's a, uh, what, probation, house arrest? And the Allies got down to business of dividing up the spoils. So they had a, a Congress at Vienna. Oh, actually, let me... Um... Let me interrupt this just because I want to. I think it's fair to make a little contrast with uh, the way Napoleon was treated to the way Napoleon treated two saints. Oh, <laughs> when uh, when he sent him. So this is C.L.R. James. Um, he, on Bonaparte's strict instructions, two saints jailers. Uh, humiliated him, called him Toussaint, his first name, gave him convicts clothes to wear, cut down his food. When the winter came, reduced his allowance for wood. They took away his one servant, not his thousand servants. Bonaparte um, sent interrogators to interrogate him. The regime tightened always. His jailers, still on Bonaparte's advice, watched him eat his food, watched him perform his natural functions. They feared he might escape and wanted him to die as quickly as possible. He had medical attendance at first, but his jailer soon dispensed with it. And this is a quote from the jailer. The construction of Negroes being totally different from that of Europeans, I have dispensed with his doctor and his surgeon, who would be useless to him. Oh my he was God. 57. Uh, he died, so uh, let me just skip. Uh, he, shivering with cold, he was spending his first winter in a cell inadequately warmed where the walls ran with moisture. His iron frame, which had withstood the privations and fatigues of ten incredible years, now huddled before the logs measured out by the orders of Bonaparte. The hitherto unsleeping intellect collapsed periodically into long hours of coma. Before the spring, he was dying. One April morning, he was found dead in his chair. So that's the that's two saints exile, and Napoleon got a little bit different treatment by the Allies. A little. Napoleon kept busy on Elba. He uh, built roads, improved the local economy, started making it a model little island. Meanwhile, the victorious allies met at Vienna and started deciding who would keep their throne, who would lose it. Uh, in many cases, they left borders as Napoleon had changed them or made them. Uh, the main first issue of course was what do we do with france and they went with the easiest solution and restored louis the 18th the brother of louis the 16th who had skipped number 17 in honor of louis's son so fat old louis almost paralyzed with gout uh, came back into paris to uh, resounding uh, yawns france was just exhausted uh, they didn't have the energy to resist the reimposition of the king. But in Vienna, the Allies soon began squabbling over the distribution of spoils. Prussia wanted Saxony, all of it. Uh, Russia wanted a bigger share of Poland. And in order to get these things, Russia and Prussia began to uh, collude. They had their little secret meetings. And they, in fact, were planning to, if necessary, uh, attack Austria. We'll try intimidation and browbeating first, but if necessary, we'll attack the Austrians and, and simply take these things. 
the British probably weren't paying very good attention. It was the French delegate, Talleyrand, so Napoleon's foreign minister, who had been foreign minister before the terror, who had been a bishop. This guy with his incredibly long career uh, survived all these different changes of regime and came out, well, not smelling like a rose perhaps, but he certainly came out standing on his two feet and he saw an opportunity here. So he went to the Austrians and to the British and said, look, the Russians and Prussians are like talking about this. And if we don't do something, you know, it could be another war. It could be, it could be really bad. So they formed a, a, a sort of a, a new coalition, Britain, Austria, and France. And the Russians and Prussians were faced with uh, a rather daunting challenge and they, they backed down a little bit. So France went from the, I guess, the, the defendant in the dock, you know, facing charges to being a full member of the coalition. And that was all Talleyrand's doing. He was a, a sneaky, slippery, thoroughly disreputable uh, guy who really succeeded at diplomacy. I know at one point, there's a famous quote about him, uh, Napoleon was furious that Talleyrand had been, I guess, double dealing or triple dealing and of course lining his pockets doing it. So he stormed into Talleyrand's house where I think he was having a salon and screamed at him and said, you're nothing but a silk stocking full of shit. And then stormed out again. And Talleyrand simply looked at his guests rather apologetically and said, such a great man, such terrible manners. Kept it cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, those disputes might have gone on for a long time, but they were shocked out of their little uh, idol in Vienna by news that Napoleon had escaped from Elba. Uh, it's 1815. Napoleon had heard from agents and friends that uh, France was really not happy with the Bourbon restoration because all the diehard emigres came back. Not the moderate ones who accepted Napoleon's amnesty, but the diehards. You can imagine you know, Cuba, if all of the Cubans in Miami came back and took power, it would be uh, interesting. Yeah, it would be a bloodbath. So many uh, officers who'd made their careers under Napoleon were shunted off to the side. Some were even dismissed. And these aristocrats with big titles and, you know, nothing but their, their fancy names were put in charge. Uh, the troops weren't happy. The officers weren't happy. I'm not saying the population was you know, thoroughly disgusted, but they certainly weren't inspired by the return of the Bourbons. And then the news that Napoleon had landed in the south of France just electrified everyone. He had a thousand men. That's it. And he's invading France. The first troops that he met to stop him uh, went over to him. They just... <laughs> instead of shouting vive le roi they shouted vive l'empereur and joined him so now he had 3,000 men and was marching north uh, Marshal Ney made the famous statement to, to Louis that he would bring him back in an iron cage so he got command of an army to stop Napoleon I don't know what Ney intended but his troops didn't obey orders and they went over to Napoleon and then Ney figured oh what the hell and did the same so Poor old Louis had to emigrate a second time, and Napoleon marched into Paris in triumph. Uh, he immediately 
broadcast his desire for peace and I have no territorial ambitions, but the French people called me back. I heard them, you know, calling me, they need me. Uh, he was gathering an army, of course, while saying these things. None of the allies really hesitated. They immediately re-signed the Treaty of Chaumont, put their armies into motion. And I, I don't know that Napoleon really had any chance. Uh, the Hundred Days is a fascinating story. I don't think it would have... I can't see a way where it would have had a happy ending for Napoleon. He did come up with one last great campaign. He marched north into Belgium where there were two allied armies, a Prussian army and an Anglo-Dutch-Belgian army. The Dutch-Belgian component is often forgotten, certainly in Britain, but most of that army was in fact not British. And even the British segment, as typically, was mostly not English, you know, the English of <laughs> fight to the last drop of Scottish, Welsh and Irish blood. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Napoleon uh, divided his enemies by an incredible swift movement, caught them off guard and, and defeated the Prussians very badly at Ligny. And except for a, a, a screw up by the commander of his reserve, probably would have uh, destroyed them. Instead, the Prussians retreated. Uh, Wellington retreated also in the direction of Brussels, found a place he had seen before that looked like a, a good place to make a stand and asked the Prussians, if I stand here, will you come? And the Prussians said, well, if we come, will you stand there? And that uneasy alliance uh, managed to survive. Uh, crazy old Marshal Blucher led the Prussians towards Waterloo and Napoleon was hampered by um, heavy rains that delayed him. Uh, he could have attacked in, in, in the morning but it was still raining and really soft, muddy ground is terrible for cannons because most of the cannons are firing cannonballs and they hit the ground and they bounce and they are still extremely dangerous. But when they hit a big pile of mud, that's no good. So Napoleon had to wait until afternoon to begin his fight. Once again, he was having... Uh, health issues, intestinal problems, I'm not sure. In the middle of the battle, he had to lie down and take a nap. And the story of Waterloo is pretty well known. It was a, a definite total defeat. Napoleon had nothing that he could do after that and ended up having to abdicate a second time. There would be no Elba after this defeat. They sent him to St. Helena, an island in the South Atlantic off the coast of Africa, uh, very far from France. He's not going to be able to escape. He does not have a thousand of his troops with him. He is not the emperor of St. Helena. He is a prisoner under British guard. And that's where he spent the uh, last few years of his life in, in, in ill health, uh, having conversations <laughs> and uh, making up new versions of the Battle of Marengo. Uh, and then he, he said quite a few things on St. Helena that people quote as his intentions, but uh, yeah, we saw his intentions earlier. So anything he said on St. Helena is um, hindsight and uh, nostalgia more than anything else. Yeah, the pronouncements of, I always think, the pronouncements of these people are 
a pretty good source of raw data, but not the truth by any means. You have to. There's a massive difference between diaries and memoirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Memoirs yeah. are always, well, here's my version of what happened. Memoirs are lies to the reader and diaries are lies to yourself. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Just came up with that right now. Did you? That, I'm very impressed. Um, so we're finally done the revolution. My God, 1789 to 1815, 26 years of upheaval and war. That's almost as long as the war on terror. <laughs> okay. Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> so the, the consequences or impact of the French Revolution, long-lasting, uh, very widespread, and very... Yeah, I mean, and the Haitian Revolution, too. Uh, you know, the... Like, C.L.R. James argues that the British you know that that kind of position the abolitionist position was uh not the abolition i yeah i guess the abolition of the slave trade position was kind of up for grabs between the french and the british and when haiti defeated the french the british saw a lot of advantage in taking that position um he kind of makes that argument the war had a yeah had a big effect on uh, not just the slave trade but on the international carrying trade the British were already ahead in terms of merchant shipping, but with the blockade, the Europeans are shut out and the British are doing the bulk of the trade with South America, with the Caribbean, with the U.S., and it's a, a stranglehold that they're going to keep afterwards. But I was thinking more in terms of the spread of uh, ideas. Uh, liberty and equality are pretty powerful ideas and they spread throughout Europe, e- even to Spain and Portugal, but mostly to Italy and to uh, Germany. These ideas did not make it to Russia. Uh, even though the French army were there, they weren't there long enough. And they didn't spread out the way they had in Germany and Italy. So Russia remained immune from these ideas. But, they, the, it, uh, but England itself did not. So I guess we'll talk more about this. But I was reading in E.P. Thompson's uh, The Making of the English Working Class. Right. And the, the, both the movement of English, you know, Jacobins and, uh, and the suppression of them was a big deal in the first two decades of the 19th century. Yes. Yeah, I had no, I had no idea about that, right? Because you just think Britain is the enemy of, of France, but like there were lots of people in the this, you know, working class, increasingly, a, a class, working class, uh, that were yeah. very had a strong affinity to, to. No, we we have to be careful about uh, backdating uh, nationalism. This is the origin of nationalism: the French Revolution. Prior to this, you were the subject of a king or of your ruler, whether it was a duke or a prince or a czar or whoever. Uh, Your loyalty is simply to your overlord. Ethnicity or or nation, these are not concepts that are really considered important. So Germany is not the land of the Germans. It's just, you know, those places where people speak German. It goes for Italy. However, the French 
definitely went full-blown nationalistic to defend their revolution. It was the Marseillaise, right? Allons-en-France, la patrie. Uh, basically, let's go sons of motherland, fatherland, whichever is more appropriate. But the French didn't just spread liberty and equality and the idea of abolishing feudalism. They taught the Germans and the Italians about nationalism, not in classrooms. They taught them by beating the snot out of them and giving them a common experience. If you're German in this period, your experience is shared with all the other Germans of having French armies marching across your land, of, of being forced to contribute troops to Napoleon, you know, of having your, your goods and your food rounded up for the French army. And it's also, um, yeah, like the source of the, the power, like where did this come from? Like why are French, why is France so powerful? And it's because of nationalism. Pardon. So to quote, yeah, to quote CLR James again, and he quotes this other person, Hilaire Belloc, I was telling you about it before we started recording. He says, between 1789 and Waterloo in 1815, the people of France staggered Europe and the world with the colossal scope of their achievements in war and peace. No one had previously conceived that so much power was hidden in a people. Hilaire Belloc has perhaps expressed it best when he said that after August 1792, the reactionary classes of Europe armed against this new monster and set themselves two tasks, to reach Paris and to destroy democracy. The first task took them 22 years. On the second, they are still engaged. Yes. Yeah, and he says the same happened in San Domingo. The population had been transformed. No one could have guessed the power that was born in them when Buchmann gave the signal for revolt on that stormy August night in 1791. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, no question. I, I think we'll cover this in a later episode. But immediately after the French Revolution, the monarchs of Europe went, for the most part, full-blown reactionary conservative, trying to, you know, turn the clock back to go back to a pre-liberty and equality, a pre-national. They were terrified of nationalism. Yeah. The idea of harnessing it will come much, much later. Uh, the French Revolution had a, an impact outside of Europe as well, uh, not just in Haiti, uh, in Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll see, I think, in a later episode. We have to talk about Mahmoud Ali, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we'll talk about the whole like imperialism in in Europe. I mean, I mean, in in the Arab world, uh, and and Napoleon, you know, kind of starting with Napoleon going there, and also. Um, yeah, Orientalism. I want to talk about that too. Like the whole oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Scholarly enterprise. For sure. Did did uh, you want to um, go to Haiti here for a minute? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we when we concluded last episode, Dessalines had declared himself emperor. Um, he was assassinated in 1806, and at that point there was kind of a partition of the island. So Christophe became king in the north, the king in the north, uh, and Pétion uh, was the president in the south. So the south was a republic, the north was a kingdom. Christophe had a lot of support from England and he he really like liked the cultural trappings of English uh, monarchy. He was trying to restore the plantation system, but Pétion um, ultimately over the next 
two decades, Haiti moved back towards a subsistence agriculture. And uh, that means it was no longer that enormous source of wealth for anybody, including themselves. Uh, and But CLR James talks about how by doing that, they also preserved the, um, the independence of the island because it's also not anything. It's no longer a crown jewel that anybody wants either. Right? It's just to free people trying to live their lives. Uh, on the other hand, there's still, uh, as I think it was Chomsky, but somebody said that's this old slogan, like the threat of a good example, right? If you can, if they could be prosperous and, and live their lives out normally, having overthrown slavery, that would be a very bad example for all the Caribbean colonies and the slave uh, slavers. And of course, the U.S., which is still a slave society until the 1860s. So um, the powers, the European powers agreed to punish them mainly by debt, so finance. So they imposed an indemnity on Haiti that they had to pay back France the value of the property that they lost, including the slaves. So they basically had to pay back the value of their own slavery to France. Uh, the indemnity at the time was 150 million francs, uh, and it took them until the 1940s. They, they made their last payment sometime in the 1940s for wow. this uh, indemnity. So when in, in the 2000s, when they had an, a democratically elected leader who tried to raise the minimum wage and have disband the army and do a number of decent things to Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, they, the U.S. blocked all these initiatives, uh, and uh, including a loan that he was looking for from the Inter-American Development Bank. And at that point, when all of these options were blocked, Aristide finally started a public campaign about the indemnity. And they calculated then, so that was 17 years ago, that the indemnity would be $23 billion um, at, in those dollars. It's probably more something like double that or more now. And uh, there's no statute of limitations, and they've got the receipts. So uh, I think at some point, France is going to have to pay that back. <laughs> um, Chris, one last anecdote about Christophe, because I told you how all the all the Haitian generals had to, um, had to surrender to Leclerc, and they ended up starting back in rebellion slowly over time. So Christophe was one of these... Um, and Christophe was apparently having dinner with, uh, with Leclerc one night. Um, he wouldn't go though. He would never went to dinner cause he knew their, their plan was to deport all the generals. So he had all his soldiers, uh, placed so as to be able to rescue him. Um, so he's sitting there and one of Leclerc's officers is continuously filling his glass of wine, trying to get him drunk, I guess. And Christophe loses his temper and he says, you puny little white, if I had drunk the wine you poured out for me, I would have wanted to drink your blood and the blood of your general too. So Leclerc, everybody at the table goes silent. And then Leclerc says, uh, arrest this man. Um, you know, call the officers of the guard. And Christophe's still sitting there and he goes, it's useless to call them. Mine are under arms and with a single word, I can make you prisoner. But I remain subject to you as I was to Toussaint. Had he said to me, hurl this island to the sea, I would have done my best. This is the way I obey or command. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, um, 
that's Haiti. Well, Napoleon has a huge impact as well. Uh, the idea of careers open to talent, he had you know, promised that anyone could rise as he had. And the famous saying that every soldier had a marshal's baton in his knapsack. This is really encouraging to the middle class and, and even to the, the, you know, the working class. You can rise. Social mobility. This is a new idea. Because up till then, the whole concept of estates, you know, you, you are what you do. And if you can't change what you do, you're definitely not changing <laughs> who you are. And, and the glass ceiling keeping the middle class down because the nobility wants to remain exclusive. Napoleon seems to have shattered that glass ceiling and allowed people of talent to rise. So the idea of a meritocracy... Uh, of social mobility, and this is also really an intoxicating idea for the rest of Europe, and one that kings are really not that thrilled uh, to hear, because it calls into question the aristocracy and hereditary monarchy. There's also a, a concept uh, of um, genius that builds around Napoleon, the idea that he was a special human being and therefore entitled to special treatment that he was uh, smarter uh, than anyone else who had come along in history he was a very very intelligent man not only a military genius but he could hobnob with scientists and and philosophes uh, he could dictate four letters at once he had four secretaries and dictating four letters at once, which I think is like playing four chess games at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did they say that he's, CLR says the same about Toussaint. He slept two hours a night, you know, rode right. 125 miles a day. So just the energy levels are un, unbelievable. I've actually heard the same thing about Hugo Chavez. So it's like, maybe it's just, there's some quality of just physical stamina too that goes into being a, a hyperactivity. Yeah, Napoleon rarely slept more than a couple of hours a night, and he slept on a on a camp bed because he didn't want to go all the way back to his fancy bedchamber. And he would wake up at three in the morning, which meant that his secretaries had to wake up at three in the morning because he was like right to work. Yeah, they wear their secretaries out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this concept of genius is going to fit in with. Um, uh, romanticism uh, in the 1800s the concept of, of these special talents or innate talents which will later be applied not only to individuals like Napoleon but to nations and then to races and you can see where this gets us into trouble yeah. just, just like the careers open to talent will eventually feed into uh, liberalism and, you know, the idea of harnessing the uh, economic and, and work habit talents of the middle class to make your state or your nation greater. Napoleon's also been studied quite a bit in terms of his style uh, of rule. And you can ask the question, which I don't think has been conclusively answered yet. Was he, you know, the last of the enlightened despots or, or was he the first of the modern dictators? I mean, definitely modern dictators are not generally 
enlightened, right? I mean, they're they're generally uh... Napoleon was pretty was pretty ruthless. Uh, there was an attempt on his life that, called La Machine Infernale. Somebody set off a bomb uh, when he was supposed to arrive at the opera, but they missed him. Uh, his head of his secret police, there you go, he had a secret police, Joseph Fouché, uh, told Napoleon that the culprits were royalists. But at the time, Napoleon was trying to reach out with an olive branch to the royalists. This would have killed that. So instead of arresting the culprits... He arrested some Jacobins and sent them to French Guiana to, to die uh, at the place they called La Guillotine Seche, the dry guillotine. So that that's pretty nasty. Uh, he certainly had people shot, uh, arrested, killed. Well, I mean, yeah, they were planning. They were, I mean, and, and in, a, in a real way, they conducted a genocide in Haiti. You know, they were just, they were, th- they were killing thousands, uh, you know, they would shoot 600 people at a time, drown a thousand people at a time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and the plan, Leclerc wrote to Napoleon towards the end, sometime before he died of the fever, uh, that, you know, the best thing to do would be to kill all of these uh, former slaves and repopulate the island with yeah. new slaves. So... Yeah. Well, yeah, Napoleon encouraged his army to be ruthless in Spain as well. Yeah. Yeah. But they certainly made him uh, the preeminent figure in, in Europe, and they built up, I, I think it's fair to use the term, a cult of personality around him, which fu- future dictators are certainly going to take note of, e- even some future monarchs, although not that many. The era of the enlightened despots is, I think, just about over. He still studied, we mentioned before, his campaigns are still studied at West Point, and you've pointed out several times that they, they focus on his victories, but not his defeats or his failures. Yeah, it's totally, it's a, it's a totally wrong way to study history and especially military history, because you, know, you, you learn more from, from defeats than from successes. Well, you also learn if you go to the well too often, you're eventually going to come up dry. You know, you can't uh, expect to win every battle if you, if you keep risking everything on one throw of the dice. Um, <laughs> yeah, the cult of personality, they also build him up and forgive him for many of his little foibles. Uh, the egomania, the inability to stop. Um the fact that he cheated at cards, that he was a serial, <laughs> yeah, that he was a serial adulterer, uh, that he was jealous of his own marshals. He he definitely uh, felt a little bit of jealousy if someone was almost as successful as him, and felt the need to you know put them down just a little bit and then exalt himself a little bit more. He's he's not really an attractive uh, personality. But he seems to get a pass on all these things because of the glory that he brought to France. And that idea that glory is worth it. How many hundreds of thousands of people had to die for his glory? Agreed. Agreed on all accounts. And then one last uh, knock on, on him. Several historians have pointed out that Napoleon was probably the single person 
most responsible for the rise of Britain in the 19th century. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that is the worst thing he did, for sure. So what are we going to do now? We're going to go to the Industrial Revolution. we got to talk about Bolivar, who's a contemporary of... He's getting going as a lot of this stuff is winding down. Yeah, let's go to South America. <laughs>